Hi, I'm Jane O'Reilly, and this is Ageless. I'm 40, and my life is just getting started. I'm here to share real talk and real experiences about how to live life ageless. Nothing's off the table. You know the vibes. Let's go. Welcome back to Ageless. I'm Jane O'Reilly, and today I am joined by Colleen Kochman. She is a master recovery coach dedicated to helping high-functioning perfectionists break their dependence on alcohol and other self-sabotaging habits. Her strategies for emotional sobriety teach women to step into their own power, feel safe with themselves, and learn how to trust their intuition. Through her own experience with alcoholism, Colleen founded Recover with Colleen after realizing that being sober is not a good goal. Permanently identifying with alcohol as a drinker or a non-drinker is limiting. Colleen developed the accelerated recovery process using evidence-based strategies in neurophysiology and psychology that have been scientifically proven to help people change. She helps women bypass the stigma and drama that society associates with sobriety by focusing on what is really important, our relationship with ourselves. She combines emotional intelligence, positive psychology, and coaching to help women strategize the next chapter of their lives. Colleen holds a Bachelor's of Science in Education, a Master's of Science in Coaching, and a Women's Functional and Integrative Medicine Professional Certificate. She is also the host of the Recover with Colleen podcast, and Colleen is here to share the unconventional path she took not only to recover her mental health, but also how she built a multiple six-figure business helping women reclaim their power in all areas of their lives. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jaina. It's so good to meet you and to be here today. I'm excited to talk about this and get into it with you. I am delighted and so excited to have you here. But first off, I want to thank you for being here. And I feel like the universe put us together in divine timing. And I have a huge soft spot in my heart for what we're about to cover today because I have shared in previous podcasts that I'm a sober woman in recovery. So it's been a journey. And I wanted to start by hearing your story and hear about your journey and everything in between. Okay. Well, one of my favorite frameworks is there are two types of people in the world. There are people who are in recovery from something, and then there are people who are still struggling. And whether it be alcohol or food or, you know, financial debt or toxic relationships or trauma or all of the things, you know, once you kind of come to that point where you realize that you can either continue to dig the hole or heal, that's, that's really the difference. And I am so happy to be here with you. And I just find that people who identify in recovery have such kindred spirits and vulnerability is so welcome. We are here to, you know, stop with the crap and stop the bullshit and tell the truth and hold space for each other. And so I just love this, this community of people that I find myself attracted to and attracted to me of, of just truth tellers and truth seekers. And to me, that's how I define recovery. And my story, um, began, you know, for years, I didn't quit drinking until I was 46 years old. And I always thought alcohol was part of the good life. I 
drank because I thought I was celebrating and I was happy. I honestly believe part of the problem was privilege. You know, I didn't have to work a, a second shift job in a factory, you know, even though I have four children, you know, my bills were paid and I had the privilege of drinking nice wine. And I can remember my grandmother passed on this saying to me that you should always eat on the good dishes, right? And you should, you should be your own best guest. And somehow my brain took that to mean that I should be drinking top shelf vodka on Monday, like celebrate every single day, right? So I really feel that I got caught in the weeds with alcohol because ignorant, I had no idea that alcohol is a drug. And what in our society, there's this kind of belief that there's two types of drinkers. There's normal drinkers and then there's the alcoholics. And for me, I had four kids plus three stepkids. So I was I was running seven kids, you know, and I was teaching hot power yoga first thing in the morning and I ran marathons and I was a coach on Instagram with all of my vegan perfect foods and sourdough breads. And like, there was no possible way I could be an alcoholic. And so what happened to me is that as I noticed I was drinking more, um, and the reason I was drinking more was because I had a high tolerance. Once I kind of went past where I was drinking more than other people, then I, I took it underground. You know, I used to have a decoy bottle of wine on the counter. Mommy's setting such a good example, having one or two glasses of wine. But I had a stash in my closet and I was hitting the Grey Goose vodka in the background. And so I went on with like this for many, many years, dealing with this problem with shame. And I got caught in the shame spiral. And of course, as you know, alcohol is a drug. It's a depressant drug. And so while I'm going to my physician to talk about my depression or my anxiety, and I'm getting medications for things like that, it never occurred to me or my physicians, to be fair, I might not have mentioned I was drinking like half a fifth of vodka a day, but it never... It never occurred to me that I was dosing myself with a high dose of a depressant drug. And so I found myself in a darker and darker place. You know, and what do we do when we don't realize we're our own problem? We project it onto the world. I thought I needed to get another divorce. You know, I, here I am in this marriage and I resented my husband so much because I was staying home with the kids and not just mine, his, and he was making all the money. And I perceived power issues. I thought he was a narcissist. Like in my own head, things were just really, really dark. I thought my kids were screwed up and I had screwed them up. And it just became a daily cycle where, you know, of course I wanted to stop drinking. I, I wished that on a Monday I could just skip it and I would try, but I would have these out-of-body experiences. You know, I would set the intention, okay, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink till Friday. You know, we're going to have a good week. And then I would go through my day doing all the things and running, running wild. Of course, also feeling anxious and hungover from the night before. So by the time I would get to five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, if I could make it, I didn't have any willpower anymore. I didn't have the capacity to do anything but grab the, the closest form of relief, which when you're addicted to alcohol, it does feel relieving. You know, my experience now, I've reintroduced alcohol. It doesn't, my brain doesn't respond the same way because I'm not in a dopamine deficit. I'm not in a chronic state of stress. 
But what I realize now is that my nervous system had become so dysregulated due to alcohol. But then also, of course, even when I quit drinking, I found, oh, this isn't about the alcohol. You know, I had to untangle so many things. I was really, really dysregulated. I didn't know how to process my feelings or to to stop. I, I just wouldn't let myself stop. And I remember it would be like an out-of-body experience, you know, saying I'm not going to drink and then watching my body walk back to where I kept the vodka hidden in the back and pouring that drink and wanting and speaking out loud, please don't do this. And yet there I would be doing it anyway. So that's kind of where I came to. I don't know if you, you know, have any questions about that, but that was, that was, that was my ending. I was just stuck and felt powerless to get out of it. I can relate to the powerlessness. It is one of the most paralyzing feelings I've ever experienced. And to have something have you by the grips um, and not be able to break that cycle is, it's traumatizing. Yes. And and to speak to that point, you know, trauma is learning. You know, addiction is learning. Our brain has habituated stress and relief and just cut out all the middlemen, you know, cut out all the other options, stopped going down other neuropathways. And so we just get this accelerated form of learning. That's what addiction is. And trauma is the same thing. So I was traumatizing myself every single morning, beating myself up. I didn't have the skills to understand that not everything you think is true. And that part of my problem was this perfectionistic mindset and shame that I was carrying. And so, yeah, I was traumatizing myself and it was just a vicious, wicked, dark cycle. Um, with what you said, how does alcohol and other unhealthy coping mechanisms contribute to burnout? Like how does it keep us in a cycle of stress? Like how do we break that cycle? So um, the first thing to realize is the belief that's usually operating your operating system in burnout is that I will feel better when. I will feel better as soon as I get the job, as soon as I get this project done, as soon as my husband stops being an asshole, as soon as I, you know, stop drinking, I will feel better when. And that, that is the underlying false belief because burnout is you're out of gas. That's like sitting in your car and pushing on the accelerator and then being like, why am I not going anywhere? And so I think the first awareness is to call a spade a spade. I'm burned out and I'm out of gas and continuing to pretend like I'm fine and to not acknowledge that I'm struggling is that's how we keep ourselves stuck. And for me, like my day one, I, I cannot believe how easy it was for me to quit drinking. All it took was for me to tell somebody, a complete stranger on the phone, I'm, I need help. Like for me, that gave, it just brought it into reality. It brought my subconscious truth into consciousness and it was no longer me fighting with my own demons. You know, I often say your, your bullshit detectors are in your ears. So you can't think your way out of a thinking problem. You have to speak and you have to be seen and you have to have somebody hold space for you and support you. Like asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. And so to how do you break the cycle of burnout? You acknowledge that the problem is an internal problem. It's in your thoughts. It's a lack of self-care. And stop chasing the carrot that you think as soon as you get, it's all going to fix itself. 
You know, it's, it's like I use a metaphor of you got to pull your car off the side of the road and fix the flat tire, you know, and stop filling it up every five miles and thinking you're going to go cross country. Because like I know when I work with women, one of the big objections is, well, I don't have time for this in my life right now. I don't, I have too much stress to deal with this drinking problem, you know? And again, it's like, you don't have time to fill, put air in your tire. Like you, you have to stop and deal with it. But the beautiful thing is once you acknowledge it, it relieves so much stress. Like even on day one, when you still have to go through withdrawals and detox and all of it, you've still just cut your stress by 50%. You know, it's very empowering to acknowledge. One of my favorite things to say is the first step to being okay is to acknowledge you're not okay. Like that's a problem you can work with. That I love. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, just to acknowledge that you're not okay. And like you were saying earlier, bringing the subconscious to consciousness. I, I think that's, there's so much power in that taking back your power. And so what is, I know there's a little bit of a gray area, but what's the difference between gray area drinking and alcoholism and how does drinking fuel that emotional disconnection that you were talking about? Okay. So Emotional disconnection is when you your your emotional circuit breakers are blown. You're in a chronic state of stress. The symptoms of that are brain fog, trouble making decisions, feeling pressure and anxiety, you know, just tension inside your body. And what has happened is because a state of stress biologic biologically you are negative thinking very myopic focused intrusive thoughts because hardwired stress is designed to keep you alive in this moment which means you need to pour a drink right now you know you can't see the big picture when you're in a state of stress so the disconnect is you have to stop paying attention to all of the other bigger picture, long-term self-care, all of that stuff. So when you push yourself beyond anxiety levels, like think of stress on a continuum of a scale of one to 10. And let's say seven is like top anxiety. Once you cross that and you've been there so long and you've ignored your warning lights and blown through all of the stoplights, then you go into kind of a state of collapse. That's polyvagal theory, um, where dissociation and disconnection, giving up, feeling hopeless, that is what's beyond the anxiety. So that truly is what true burnout is, is when you're no longer in a state of action and anxiety and so problem solving, you've gone into the, I can't do anything. Like just, I just give up. So gray area drinking, if I'm going to be butt-faced honest here, is a kind way of saying I'm struggling with alcohol. Gray area drinking means I've gotten in the weeds and I'm not sure what to, how to make sense of this. I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm not sure if there's a problem. And so what do you do? You spend all your time Googling, what's the difference between gray area drinking and alcoholism? Or what's the difference between alcohol use disorder and alcoholism? Like I really liked the word alcohol use disorder. I was comfortable saying, I definitely am drinking more than I want to drink. So even in active addiction, that was the term that I perceived. And then alcoholism 
first of all, there's, there's different branches of that word. Alcoholic is an identity that, that you have in your core, that you have a disease that is lifelong. You will always struggle with specifically alcohol. You do not have the capacity to drink. And whether you are drinking or sober, you know, I run into a lot of people who say they're recovering alcoholics. And if they have one drink, they're going to be... <laughs> snorting cocaine off of somebody's boobs and coming onto their husband, you know, and they have that belief in there. And science shows that it is the belief that predicts future uh, behavior with alcohol and not, not how long you were drinking. There's no genetic uh, marker. It is the belief that you're an alcoholic. Now I think alcoholism is just like, I struggled with alcoholism. Like I'm comfortable saying that I was addicted to alcohol. So alcoholism, I think could be an umbrella term. There is no specific word, uh, DSM five diagnosis. They call it substance use disorder now because that's a spectrum. So I think the other thing you get caught in and in the weeds, I know I did as a drinker was trying to figure out your diagnosis. And the bottom line is you're living from the outside in. If you're worried about what other people think and what boxes you checked on what form on the internet, the inside, your experience of your drinking is that I'm not happy with this. And trying to find a test to override, we're gaslighting ourselves when we do that. You know, we feel like something is wrong, but this, this uh, internet guy said that, well, if I don't have that many drinks per week, or I only blacked out twice last year, so it turns out I'm not, you know, it's like, it's just crazy making does that make sense? Makes all the sense in the world. Thanks for clarifying all of that. Um, I did want to talk about perfectionism because I know I mentioned that when I was introducing you. I struggle with perfectionism. I always have, but I also love that side of myself. Mm -hmm. However, when you couple that with over with needing being a doer and needing to be doing something all the time, that's where I get to the burnout phase, and that's when. I want to drink or use a substance more than ever. Yeah. So perfectionism, and I'm going to say this, it, it'll be a little spicy, but these are just words, right? But perfectionism itself is a mental health disorder. You are arguing for a version of reality that does not exist. You know, like if you stop and just look around, like I can see out my window right now and I can see a tree that was hit by lightning and it is not, and it's got a big scar on it. The trees may be out there giggling at the, the scar on the tree, but in nature, in the 3D world, things just are what they are. There is no good or bad or right or wrong or better or worse. You know what I mean? And the first step to awareness I got this from Don Miguel Ruiz's books, and I'm not going to even name like the four agreements because I read all the books and I love him. They're so good. But his, his explanation, and I read this, I think in the five levels of attachment, is that the true definition of awareness is the ability to separate what's going on in your mind and in your body from the outside world. Okay. So perfectionism is the belief that things should be a certain way and that they mean something. And so the thing is, we do, of course, as humans, we do want things to be a certain way and they do mean something, but it's the reality that we get to choose that and not be driven by the beliefs that have been program programmed into us or the beliefs that once worked for us and no longer work for us. Okay. So perfectionism is when you place a set of conditions 
on when you will and will not be okay. You're making an agreement in advance to beat yourself up or to have moral superiority, which we all enjoy that side of perfectionism. But it is just a set of conditions that you're making up in your mind. And maybe other people are agreeing with you. But what I know about perfectionism, if you really pay attention, the bar's always changing. You know, I used to think in college, the perfect amount of drinking was drinking till I puked and then sleeping all day Saturday. Like, I didn't think that was a problem. Yay. Super fun. We're doing it again. See you guys. Let's do it next time. Right. And then as a young mother, perfect drinking was no drinking during pregnancy. And then later when I had small kids, it was one glass of wine or two glasses of wine. I had no problem with that because I perceived that to be the perfect amount of alcohol. It wasn't until what I thought was the perfect amount of alcohol didn't match what my hand was bringing to my mouth that the disconnect began and I began to beat myself up because I'm not doing it right. And then that's when I got into a shame spiral, which of course I can't tell other people because they might agree that I'm not doing it right. And then I have to put my drink down forever because in this society, we believe that your only option once you get in the weeds with alcohol is to quit forever and admit you're an alcoholic and start going to meetings and making amends to people. Like that's, that is whether you've ever been to an AA meeting or not, that's the belief that kind of is the correct, correct course of action. And so whether you're talking about alcoholism or whether you're talking about just your workout or the way you eat, realizing that there is no perfect and that your job as a human being is to create a safe space in yourself. And here's my shocking truth is that in my recovery, like I now say I'm recovering from perfectionism, not alcoholism. Like alcohol is so far behind me. Like I have a drink now. It's not a problem. But perfectionism, that belief that things need to be a certain way, that I need to be a certain way. And I don't know if I finished my sentence, but that bar is always changing. And so having learned to have a relationship with myself where I'm okay exactly as I am right now, and, and that allows you to live from the inside out. And here's what I was going to say. I get so much more done. I am even more productive because I give myself permission to go at whatever speed is right for me today. You know, the perfectionistic mindset is I have to have 57 things done before breakfast. And allowing myself to get up and say, my body doesn't feel like that today, or I'm experiencing brain fog today, and give myself what I need in real time, instead of using this mental itinerary and beating myself up when I don't make it, that is how you overcome perfectionism, is to move into the experience of what things are with full acceptance, knowing you can change them, instead of arguing that they shouldn't be that way. Uh, yeah, it's like mental gymnastics and I struggle with it hard and yeah, you're right. Just, you know, I, I have always struggled with, you know, feeling like as I am, I'm not enough. And that is the story that I told myself for so long that I started to believe it. And so I'm like deconstructing that. And that kind of leads me into my next question for you. And that is, about emotional sobriety and why is emotional sobriety the path to inner peace, mental freedom, building a deeper connection with ourselves? You know, um, let's speak on that. Okay. So to me, I define emotional sobriety kind of another way of speaking of the awareness, the awareness that there's a difference between what you think and what things are. 
And so emotional sobriety is a willingness to, to not believe everything you think and to make, it's, it's kind of a tool. Okay. So words have meaning and this is just a framework, but it's making circumstances neutral. They're not good or bad or right or wrong. Kind of like I've already alluded to. And then realizing that the way you feel about the circumstance is a reflection of your thoughts. <laughs> and so then it's introducing mindfulness to where you will become aware of watching yourself, watching the thinker, watching the doer, noticing the patterns. You're able to step outside of the human experience of just reacting and, and introduce consciousness. And the way I describe consciousness is what is our superpower as humans? Our ability to choose our focus, our ability to choose where we're placing our attention. And so just to speak to your belief of I am not enough, I have also struggled with that too. And I also believe that I am enough. And so in the, in the real world, as I move through space and I move through my day, I am able to use my feelings as my friends because they're telling me when that the belief I don't like is inactive, is in action. You know, if I show up and I'm feeling like right now with you, maybe for a minute I might feel a little intimidated. We've never met before. How is this going to go? Those feelings alert me to an invitation to correct my thinking so that my subconscious fears are no longer driving my bus. I can behave differently. So you're giving yourself a choice. And so emotional sobriety to me is, is choice-based. You get to think and believe whatever you think, but you can't, you, you can't access that choice until you can step outside of it and say, what else could be true here? What do I want to believe and how do I need to behave and what do I need to think to get my ass moving in that direction? That's what emotional sobriety is when you're not intoxicated by your own subconscious emotions. Love that. Um, so how do we protect our mental health? Well, that's an excellent question. And I would say it is just as important as your physical health. You know, and now that I, we are, I'm, I just turned 50. I take my health real seriously. I don't work out anymore because I want booty butt and six pack of abs. I work out so I don't fall and break my hip like an old woman. You know what I mean? So how do we protect our mental health is to realize just like food, you are what you eat. Mental health, you are what you think. So if you are letting the talking heads on the TV start your day and tell you about all the bad news and what they think about all the other things, you know, our thoughts, those are just reflections of everything we've ever been exposed to. You know, somebody who's never been exposed, somebody who lives in an indigenous culture, they don't wake up one day and say, I think I want a 9-11 turbo in red. Porsche. They don't think I need Grey Goose vodka because it's not on their list of possibilities. So everything we think it's because we've been exposed to it and made a decision, yes or no. And then we just become a rejection of whatever it is, you know, so we think we're writing our own rules when in reality, we're just responding and reacting unconsciously to other people's rules and therefore living by a different set of rules. So protecting your mental health first of all, means protecting what you expose yourself to. Then it is 
taking the time to untangle your thoughts and beliefs every day. And I know when I first quit drinking, that's a big, like I had 30 years of crap. I use an analogy with a, with a core, a, a drawer, a junk drawer full of cr- uh, tangled chargers. Like you have to pull out each cord, you know, because we've made so many assumptions. And if my husband's five minutes late, that means I need to divorce him. You know, I mean, we've just accelerated all of these thought processes to where they're habits. So you have to take the time to, to do that work. But then like for me, I can actually walk, talk and feel at the same time. You know, if I get a little, if I get triggered, I know to put myself in a safe place so that I'm not responding to subconscious thoughts. If my husband and I get into an argument and I feel my body responding, I'll be like, I have to go to the bathroom. And that's usually all it takes. Sometimes though, it's hit something deep. I need to make sense of it. So I'll say, can we reschedule this uh, for later because I need to take some time or whatever. So we protect our mental health by protecting our experience, like our nervous system and letting our bodies inform us of what we need or, or don't need and stop, stop blowing through our own stop signs. You know, if your body is saying I'm overwhelmed, believe it. Like, okay, then what are you going to do? Not I'm so overwhelmed. I can't do all this. And then you just keep doing it. Well, it's only going to get worse. First off, I know that this is an audio only podcast, but Colleen, you do not look a day over 30 and oh you are God. an ageless girl. I just had to say that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm sure yes, some of, of it's course. Zoom filter because I think I look great for my age. You know what I mean? I think I look 50 and I'm so proud. I just did a triathlon for my, that was my gift to myself. I trained all summer for a sprint triathlon. And uh, went and got my trophy on my birthday. So thank you. Love that. So proud of you. That's amazing. And I'm sure you're a huge inspiration to my audience today. So where can we find you and how do we start your accelerated recovery process program? Well, so I am very simple to find. Recover with Colleen. That's my website. You can find the podcast on my website, but of course my podcast is wherever all podcasts are. So it's just the Recover with Colleen podcast. Um, my Instagram handle, Recover with Colleen. Um, anything I do is is that. So if you are struggling with alcohol or you have been sober for a really long time and you're like, I kind of want to drop this identity, you know, and just move move about the world. Um, it's, it's amazing because in my program, I have women on the same call. One of them is quitting drinking and going for that, you know, 30 days, one year, like whatever sobriety right next to somebody who's talking about, well, I want to have a glass of wine this weekend. How is that going to go? But the way I present recovery is it's a choice. And the more you lean into your choice, you know, in other rooms, you might be like, well, that's triggering me to listen to her talk about alcohol. No, it's triggering your your invitation to say, well, I could go choose to drink. Why don't I want to? And and so in my program, um, it's not about the alcohol. That's the niche of women I, I talk to because my recovery began with alcohol, but we do emotional sobriety. And I use um, four kind of pillars. I teach people how to correct the dopamine deficit because when you quit drinking, have you, you've heard of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, right? Yes. So that... That can take 
a year. For me, it was 18 months. I had no idea that you could actually rewire your dopamine with the right tools. It's called self-directed neuroplasticity. So I do that, nervous system regulation. I do positive psychology and growth mindset. And I do have a free masterclass for anybody who is just wants to know more about this emotional sobriety thing, you know, or is, is interested and I can give you the link, but if you go to my website, it'll, it'll show you, you know, you can sign up for my reclaim your power over alcohol masterclass. I've got a lot, I've got a lot of free stuff that you can find on my website. She's got a great website and I'm going to be putting this in the show notes. So it'll be there. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing all that you are, your journey and your vast knowledge and personal experience. I am sure my audience was touched just as I was today. And thank you so for adding so much value to my show. I really appreciate you. It was great to meet you. Thank you for having me as a guest and I'd love to have you on my show. So let's get that scheduled. Let's do it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Ageless. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Tune in next week for a new episode.